Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 2055-450-NOAH. That's 2055-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. I think uh, right off the top, I'd like to say thank you to the FreeCAD devs. I They enable a lot of things around my house, and it's a project that I use on a weekly basis for sure. And I don't know how much uh, thanks they actually get for you know enabling hobbyists and their 3D printing uh, endeavors. So I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate that project. So they, they do 3D printing or they... No, so FreeCAD is a CAD software. Oh, FreeCAD. Um, okay. Yep. I've been using it for quite some time now. It's been out for a long time. And what because I'm not a professional um, you know, CAD person, FreeCAD fits the bill quite well for me to make all kinds of weird things. Like I made a Christmas tree stand, and today I was making holders for some sensors that I made and stuff like that. And yeah, I really, really appreciate that it's uh, FOSS software and that it gives me a decent CAD program that um, enables me to use my 3D printer to a better extent than I could have otherwise. All right. Can we get a round of applause for FreeCAD? I appreciate what you guys do. Thank you, FreeCAD. Thank you. Thanks for helping, Steve. Thanks for making this Christmas possible. <laughs> Hey, you know, we'll go straight to the phones. Uh, that is how you can join the program. You can ask your question. You can call it an open source project that you like. It might become a theme of the program. 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. You're on the air with Steve Ovens and I. How can we help? That's you, Mr. 1137. Hello. Going once. Going twice. I can hear you there. Hello. Okay, give me a call back. I think uh, I think we're having phone issues, um, but I'll try. I'll, I'll do this one more time. I try and pull them back up. Hello. Do we have you now? Uh, yes. Okay. Hi. How can we help? Yes, you do. Sorry about that. Um, I'm the one who just drew in the matrix room asking questions. Um, or, so I'm just now on the phone. Uh, the problem I'm running into is I support um, what is it? Uh, the matrix chat program. Um, I have them doing my ESS hosting. Uh, the problem is, is I want to add some third-party bridges that they do not and have no real intention of supporting in the future what is it what's going to be a better way for me to do um either a running my own server for those individual hosts the bridges that i want to host um find somebody else or see if i can find a bridging library tool set that i can use on their hosted system yeah, that's a, a fantastic question so um I've, I've got great news for you i do this all the time um, we have plenty of uh, bridges and other things that we've tied into Matrix that aren't supported by EMS. And our through AltaSpeed, our day-to-day work server is hosted by the fine folks over at Element Matrix Services. So I'm in the exact same boat as you are. And here's how I've chosen to go about solving that problem. One of the benefits of Matrix is the very fact that it's decentralized. And so any one thing can talk to any other thing. And so... You can use something like the Matrix Ansible deploy script, which is very, very easy. We uh, we took one of our community nights and we set up and streamed setting up a Matrix server from start to finish. And I think it took me maybe eight minutes. And that was while I was explaining what I was doing. 
that included things like Grafana and Prometheus to monitor performance and all of those kinds of things. And even in that, really all that was required was about 10 variables, uh, 10 things in a file. And I think eight of those were passwords that you had to generate for things like MySQL. So it's essentially you open Bitwarden, generate eight passwords, stick them in the place in the file where it tells you to run the Ansible playbook and a matrix server will appear. Um, then from there, you would have to get your your integration or your bridge up and running, but then you can deliver those messages to wherever you like. Or, and I've absolutely run into this before, sometimes you'll have a bridging service or a thing that requires that it delivers the messages to a user on the same home server. And that's fine. What you end up doing then is let it deliver the message the first time and then just invite your EMS account to that room. Because at the end of the day, any chat between any two individuals or anything is is just a room, and so you can invite as many users into that room as you like. Okay, so I could have like three accounts that they're all me. That's right. That same room, read those same messages as I would. Okay, well, no, I I knew you would definitely know the answer to do it, but reading it online, everyone has their own opinion of how theirs is the best. Mm-hmm. I don't care if there's the best or the worst. I want something that works. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It would be negligent, though, to to say that um, it's just setting up a matrix room or a matrix server can be super easy. But because you said specifically you're talking about interested in bridges, be prepared to do some tweaking and twiddling with them because my experience has been – they just break themselves randomly. Well, it, that depends on what bridging you're using. So we have it depends. So if you're you, if you're relying on a third party service, like you're going through Facebook or something where there's uh, there's participation required on the other end, you ver- may very well run into some of those issues. But so, for example, we have an integration set up with OS Ticket, so we get all of our alerts that come into OS Ticket. That thing runs constantly and it never breaks. And in fact. Um, you can actually set it up in such a way that system D watches for those bridges to run. And if they fail, it'll automatically restart them. Um, and so that's, you can work around, you can work around a lot of that. Well, even if I can just send them, um, have system D notify me of this bridge is down, it can't restart or whatever. Just as long as I know that, for example, um, Facebook messages will not be coming through until I fix it. It would take me a month to get to it, but at least I know it. So let me ask you this. What is the thing that you're looking to tie in that isn't supported by EMS? What thing are you looking to bridge? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, um, mostly just media, um, social media sites. Okay, so I might take one step towards my my co-host here then. I, I might be prepared for a little bit of troubleshooting if... So all three of those services are services that make their money and are invested on you being on their platform, right? So LinkedIn doesn't want you to bridge somewhere else and be aware of the activity on LinkedIn. They want you on LinkedIn. Same thing with Facebook, same thing with Twitter. In fact, some of those places, and uh, Facebook is particularly egregious about this, they actively try to block a lot of things that tie in uh, to their network. And so uh, if, if if you're planning on relying on it, I would probably, I would just be prepared for... Uh, to troubleshoot, um, and then good. No, I'll just yeah. It, this is going to be a service that I'm doing for myself. Um, so if it works 51 percent of the time, I'm going to mark it as a success in my book. If I was doing it for a company or to get paid, that would be a different story. I would make sure there's a lot more checks and balances on that. But this is going sure. to be just so I don't have to be logged in or even install the any Facebook apps and still get messages from people who demand Facebook is the best messenger in the entire universe. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. I'm in the same boat. What I do, I, I... texting uh, SMS to Matrix works flawlessly. Telegram flawless. Signal flawless. Um, where you start getting into trouble, uh, Facebook. I, 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 Steve had trouble with it. I just never, flat out never got it to work right. Um, and so I never got Facebook bridged at all, I don't think. Um, Twitter seems to work okay. Uh, IRC, fantastic, flawless, no problems. Um, so it, 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 it mostly depends on the thing that you're trying to bridge to. 
Yeah, no, I, I just want to, I don't want to be banging my head against it saying, well, why can't I connect to my EMS server? Mm. But it sounds like the best thing for me to do is to go build something locally, mm-hmm. get the bridges working there, and then connect or, and my rooms and, and me into, or my EMS account into those rooms would probably resolve all the issues. At least I can try that. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's going to work first time. It's, I'm probably going to lose like three or four follicles of hair being pulled out. Mm-hmm. But I accept that. I just wanted the direction. So thank you for that. I do appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate your time. I, I would I would leave you with this parting thought as well. You know, part of it is, is it, like texting is kind of my the, the bane of my existence. It's the thing that I just seem to not be able to cut loose. Like I want to, and no matter how much I communicate to other people, every, you know, it's just, it's kind of a standard in society. And what I've told people for a long time, the bridging of text messages was pretty abysmal. Um, there was ways to do it, but none of them were particularly great. Thanks to our friends at jmp.chat and aria-net, it's now a, literally a function of you sign up for a phone number and you give it your matrix ID and all of the text messages instantly appear at your matrix ID. And I don't even think about it and I don't run it and I don't have to do anything and it's great. Um, but w- prior to that, when things didn't work, I was just very upfront with people like, I'm not going to be on your thing. I'm not going to be on Facebook. I'm not going to be on Twitter. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to text you. So here is your best option. And to the extent that this technology thing will work and deliver all of those things to me, then we can, then we can interface this way. If not, just give me a call or come see me at my office. I'm here eight to five. Uh, and I'm just very clear with people. And that has, that has worked okay. People, when you set people's expectations there, then they don't expect it to work all the time. Uh, and I think if your bar is 50%, I think you'll be okay. But call back. Let me know. I'd be interested to know how that works. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Steve, you ready to get into some email? Absolutely. All right. Our first email comes in from Tyler. Tyler writes in and says, greetings, gentlemen. First of all, thank you both for your willingness to share your knowledge and such good hosts of your amazing show. I've really enjoyed the show ever since discovering it. I have a question regarding Kubernetes. I'm interested in learning them and I've started that quest. I ran across a blog linked here and it looks like a good way to get started. I also have been reading some articles authored by someone that you may know on this site called redhat.com. And he links to Steve Ovens. My question is this. I tried to follow the blog about Kubernetes, but replacing what I can with Podman instead of Docker. I would like to follow the guide, except I don't want to use Docker. I feel like learning Podman is both better, is a better route, both for security and for the future of my career and knowledge. I now understand that Podman can be used to enclose multiple containers inside of a pod, which is really neat. I could also play with Docker more if needed. My ultimate goal is to become a pen tester. And I have dedicated pretty much all of my free time over the past few years to this goal. Steve seems like he's really good at explaining how things work in the manner that I can comprehend and was hoping that you guys could point me to a good place to learn. Podman with Kubernetes. Of course, anything security and privacy related is of extreme interest to me in this aspect of well. Again, thank you both so much for your willingness to share knowledge and the willingness to share seems like a great way we can make the world a better place. Appreciate all you do, Tyler. So, Steve, thoughts on getting started with Kubernetes? So uh, I initially tried to go to that blog post today and multiple times I was getting a 502 error um, from, I don't know, their CDN or something like that. So I wasn't actually able to read the blog. Uh, What I will say is that Back in 2020, the Kubernetes project decided to deprecate the Docker shim that was part of part of the experience. Uh, and so they moved from a reliance on Docker to a CNI, so the container native um, format for container runtimes that supported that. So you've got things like Cryo and Podman, and there's a few others out there that support that natively. Uh, and so I'm a little confused about the the uh, question. I was just kind of scanning while you were reading through it, and it looks like this person is doing um, their walkthrough on a Mac, and they're specifically referencing the Docker desktop, which I have literally zero knowledge about. I've never 
never seen or used the Docker desktop um, because it's not really relevant to um, to most people on Linux. Mm. So that being said, um, I've only really ever worked with with OpenShift, which is a d- distribution of Kubernetes. So I've never installed Kubernetes as a just a, a plain vanilla Kubernetes cluster before. So don't really know what it takes to to stand that up. I don't know why you wouldn't be able to run um, Podman instead of Docker, since Red Hat runs our version of Kubernetes on Podman. Um, so I guess it could just be the the instructions that you're following. When I was kind of searching around to try and find an answer for this, I couldn't actually find anyone that was saying anything about running Kubernetes with Docker or Podman <laughs> in terms of how to set it up. So um, I'm not exactly sure how to help with this, except to say that um, you might try... Well, if you're on a Mac, maybe you follow the directions exactly. If if not, maybe try following a Kubernetes, like how to spin up Kubernetes on a Linux machine uh, because they probably won't be using Docker desktop. Okay, so here's a question for you. So when you say that they remove the, the Docker shim, are they intentionally trying to make it less compatible with Docker or just not exclusively compatible with Docker? No, Docker Docker diverged. No, let me rephrase that. The, the standard emerged after Docker had become mainstream. Mm. And so Kubernetes adopt as as being part of the foundation, the cloud native foundation, Kubernetes is adopting the standards that uh, they set up for the runtime and all the rest of that. So when Docker diverged and then didn't pick up the way, um, Kubernetes came along and said, well, we're following the open standard. This is the standard. And since Docker is not uh, following that standard, it's not following that spec, there's a shim. And then eventually the shim went away for uh, I see. Okay. I'm getting a better picture here. So Docker made a decision. They said, we're first on the scene, and that's great. But the problem is the second man up gets the opportunity to see where all of the pitfalls were to begin with and kind of design around them, so to speak. So now Docker's all the way into this. We come up with a standard and say, here's the standard we all agree upon. And Docker says, not so cool with that. I'm doing my own thing. And Kubernetes looks over and says, well, that's fine. But we're going to go with we're going to go with the open standard. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it it was definitely an evolution over a series of years, but it it was essentially Docker. Docker still implements non uh, non CNI related things. So there there's there's functionality in Docker you won't find in the CNI tooling, and vice versa. Because while Docker has has made strides to become uh, more feature parity, I guess, or more spec compliant with CNI. It's it still is not a CNI compliant because it implements stuff outside of the spec. Interesting. So if you're looking to become a pen tester, that's his ultimate goal, right? That's what Tyler wants to do here. So he's going to potentially go into environments that are going to have Kubernetes. Would you say that it's unlikely? Let's say this goal takes him five years or seven years, five to seven years. Would you say it's we're headed down a path where it's increasingly less likely that you'll encounter Docker and more likely that you would encounter Podman? In my opinion, yes. I mean, It'll depend because the the big corporations are going to follow, you know, a VMware Tansu or Red Hat mm. uh, OpenShift or something like that because those are the places that make the the big contracts. And I'm making assumptions here, but I also would imagine that the pen testers are also more interested in that. There still are going to be like Rancher and other things like that, will, which will serve small, medium, and maybe the handful of large businesses um, or other. Um, varieties of Kubernetes out there. So I don't think Docker is necessarily going anywhere, but they definitely had, they've gone through rounds of layoff and cut back and are still kind of working to find their, their ultimate business model. And that doesn't play so well with the large enterprise clients. So you said you've never set Kubernetes up from scratch. You've always done it with OpenShift. If somebody was looking to get into Kubernetes, is OpenShift a great way for people to do that? Or is there a better option? Well, okay. So there's there are a couple of things you can do. Um, there's Minikube and Minishift, which are both, hey, follow some directions and it will spin up a small cluster on your 
uh, laptop or VM or whatever. If you're just tinkering around and you just want to understand how it works, that's the best option because you don't have to have infrastructure or even really have a good understanding of how the installation happens. Okay. Because it's basically just spin up. It spins up enough infrastructure inside of some containers on your local machine to make it work. Yeah. Um, so I, I personally like, um, OKD, which is the OpenShift uh, upstream that, that is supported by Fedora CoreOS and, um, CentOS and stuff like that. So that is, that was my on-ramp before I moved over to OpenShift proper because you don't need any kind of licensing or anything to do OKD. Now, is some of the some of the value add with OpenShift is the is the kind of thing where you log into the web UI and tell it I'm part of Steve's cluster and it spits out a custom ISO and does all the things. Is that OpenShift specific or that that kind of those kind of things do work on OKD as well? Uh, as far as I know, those are OpenShift specific because they are specific services that help you out with that. Mm. There's also supportability. So because OP- OKD is the upstream, it's going to be a less smooth thing. But for learning, that's fine. I never yeah. had anything particularly uh, earth shattering. I never up, even with OpenShift, I never take the update as soon as it's available. I let somebody else kind of smooth things <laughs> out for me. Um, you want to be boring. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the the difference is is that at least there was let me let me speak about there was the difference between documentation and stuff like that so if you read up about how to do something on okd um it would it would be different than the way that we would do things in openshift and a lot of times people didn't realize that you could use the openshift method which was all most of the time better polished mm-hmm. uh to interface with okd and so um there there are some differences here and there and polish is one of them and and all of the rest of that but for learning there's there's definitely no problem with with going that route so so that's what i'm hearing out of this uh, out of that's what i'm taking away from this question is he he wants to learn containers he wants to learn kubernetes and he eventually wants to do pen testing if the industry is skating in this direction or or we'll leave it at it quite possibly could skate into this direction then OKD might be where he wants to start, and then he can get his head wrapped around Kubernetes. So if you're really going for pen testing, Mm -hmm. I would probably start with, um, well, shameless plug, my series on how containers work from the ground up. And I'll just give you a small example. I uncovered at a client site just yesterday, uh, a vendor wanted them to make a change in the cluster. And I looked at that, and I was like, that change means that any container on that entire host can access the PIDs of all of the containers on the host itself. Normally, there's supposed to be a separation, um, but this particular change uh, would make it so that, yeah, any container that was aware of the, the fact that they could do so could request all of the PIDs from the host. And then you can imagine what kind of stuff you could do with that. Um, and so because I understood what I was reading in terms of PID separation in the namespace when I was reading through what the options did, yeah. I was able to look at that and say, that's a bad thing. The 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 uh, the series that you're talking about, that's the building containers by hand? Yep. Name. Okay. So we'll have that linked. I think we've had it linked before, but we'll have that linked in the show notes for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So you maybe start there, take a look at Steve's excellent write-ups and get get your head wrapped around the theory of it, and then maybe come back, play with OKD a little bit. Um that will likely give you the like Steve was saying. If you're interested in pen testing, then really what you're doing is looking to get a comprehensive overview and understanding of how all of these things work at a very fundamental level, so that you can then, when security briefs and 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 situations come up, you have the proper framework to evaluate those things and make recommendations to your clients. We're going to take a short break. We're going to head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom where JT is standing by with the latest Linux news headlines, and we'll be back with more feedback. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Intel releases open source OpenPGL, which they say is the industry's first open source library for path guiding so render developers can integrate state-of-the-art path guiding methods. DreamWorks Animation has claimed that they're going to release their Moonray renderer as open source software. 
MIT launches Vista 2.0, their latest self-driving car algorithm, as open source. CMU researchers open source Python Survival, a comprehensive Python code repository of user-friendly machine learning tools for working with censored time-to-event data. The Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory team has developed GridDS, an open source data science toolkit for power and data engineers that will provide an integrated energy data storage and augmentation infrastructure, as well as a flexible and comprehensive set of state-of-the-art machine learning models. Godot Engine, the free and open source full game development engine, has a big new release available with version 3.5. A team of scientists from the National Taiwan University, the Technical Universities of Denmark and Munich, and the Physikalicek Technik Bunsenstalt has built an open source design for a nanoscale imaging high-speed atomic force microscope that is buildable for under $4,000. The Linux SIF SMB3 client updates were merged on Sunday just in time for the Linux 6.0 merge window. Manticore releases their improved search, written in C++ and based on Sphinx 2, as a purely open source alternative to Elasticsearch. Reversing lab researchers discovered a new ransomware family targeting Linux-based systems in South Korea. New IoT malware named Rapperbot is now targeting Linux servers via SSH brute force attacks. And lastly, Tails 5.3.1 is out as an emergency release to fix a security vulnerability in the Linux kernel. Thanks, JT. You'll hear him in the middle somewhere. We try to hit it right about halfway through, but you hear him here on the Ask Noah show. It will give you the week in review, give you the latest on your Linux news headlines. Our second email comes in from Thor. Thor writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks so much for a great show. I've been a long-time listener and a distinct podcast a long, long time ago. You recommended the PreSonus Audio Box USB interface. That's been running great with a little tweak under Pulse Audio, but I'm now having trouble with Fedora Wire Plumber Session. This happens when running the applications like Discord. Audio gets chopped up, pitch becomes wobbly sounding, and as soon as I use both inputs and outputs on the audio box sound card, if I select a different interface for either input or output, it works as intended. Earlier, I could fix this in Pulse Audio by setting the sample rate in Etsy Pulse slash Damon dot com. Default equal default dash sample dash rate forty four one hundred and alternative sample rate forty four one hundred. Do you have a suggestion for a similar fix in Wire Plumber session? Or is it time for a new audio interface? In that case, which audio interface would you recommend? I have a single XLR microphone headset via jack and phono connection to speakers. Best regards, Thor. So I am not, uh, I don't have a suggestion on how to statically set uh, the, the, the sample rate in uh, outside of Pulse Audio. Um, Hasn't been something that's come across my radar in a while, so I haven't really dug into that. All of my stuff at the studio is now audio over IP, um, so I don't deal with that very much. Um, as far as audio interfaces that I do use, and I've not seen the sample issue, rate issue with these, it doesn't mean that it can't happen, but I, I haven't seen it, uh, is the Lexicon Alpha. Um, they don't make these anymore. But they are available on eBay for like uh, $25, $50. And there are two things that I like about them. First of all, uh, uh, Lexicon is a very reputable company that has been making very high-end audio interfaces for a very long time. Um, and the other thing that I really like about it is that they allow you to feed it line-level input. So in your case, you're connecting an XLR microphone. They absolutely have preamps, and it sounds great. Um, and it has a head, headset jack uh to connect your your speakers and line out to connect your speakers and a headphone jack to connect your headphones. Um, so it'll I think it'll check all of your boxes. Um, the other one that you might look into, and I have seen the sample rate issue with this box, um, but not in in quite some time. And that is the Focusrite two i two, which will give you two XLR inputs and the 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 mono out. Uh, excuse me, it gives you stereo out, quarter-inch stereo out on the back, and then you get a headphone uh, stereo jack on the front. So either of those two interfaces, um, I have not seen that sample rate issue with. I I have long long tried to figure out why that happens. It's not just with the PreSonus. It's essentially really any sub-$100 or cheaper interface uh, that seems to switch and I'm not real sure why that happens, um, but it certainly can be frustrating. 
So I'll keep my ear out if I hear anything. And unli- uh, undoubtedly, after re- simply reading this email uh, on the air, there is going to be five or ten people that will go, I know exactly what the answer is. And so certainly would open that up. If you have an idea for Thor, please write in live at asknoshow.com. But if you're looking for something, the quick fix, the easy fix, the cheap fix, uh, you know, ebay.com, lexicon, alpha, and pick one of those up. I think you will find that that audio sample rate issue disappears. Our third email comes in from William. William writes in and says, Hi, no one, Steve. I was recently given a Lenovo ThinkPad. It's an Edge 579A62, originally purchased in 2012. It was given to me in great condition. All it needed was a new hard drive and some upgrade in RAM. I had both, and I installed Spiral Linux. This is a Debian-based distro, and I have everything up to date and working great. I'd like to use this device to play Blu-ray movies, if that is possible. This laptop has a Core i3. It's a 380M 2.53 gigahertz CPU. It has 6 gigabytes of RAM and an Intel HD graphics chip. Came with a removable DVD drive that I would like to replace with a Blu-ray drive. First, the Core i3 and Intel HD graphics, are they even good enough to play a Blu-ray movie? As far as I can tell, they should be, but I wanted a second opinion. Second, can I purchase a Blu-ray player from Amazon or eBay that is listed as a replacement for a ThinkPad T-Series? See the links in the example. And finally, what software application or libraries do I need to install on my Debian system for the laptop to play Blu-ray discs in VLC? Assuming the hardware can make it happen, one more thing to note before I forget, the system is unfortunately limited to USB 2.0, even in the eSATA port, so external Blu-ray drives will likely not work properly on this laptop. Thank you for the show. I'm always excited to hear the variety of topics in every new episode. I have links to all of the Amazon things and eBay things that I've been I've referenced there below. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. William. Hey, thanks for writing in, William. I appreciate the email. So, Steve, your I know you've have dealt with this uh, uh, on in a limited way um, at your home. You've had some issues getting Blu-ray to play. What did you find is the source cause of that issue? And do you think that there's any similarities here between what um, William is going through? So in the past, I have found that this is actually largely driven by software. I've had times where, for example, I was telling Noah that on my NVIDIA Shield, for example, uh, Cody just stutters like crazy over 4K video. And if I switch the player to something else or play it across Plex with the direct play on the same device, no issues whatsoever. And I've, I've replicated this before on like little nucks and things like that. And I assume that part of this has to do with the hardware playback ability. So if your, if your graphics card supports hardware playback or hardware decoding or, or your CPU, it depends, right? Cause there's quick sync and other things around there. Uh, then you'll have a better time than not. This particular CPU is fairly old now. It's 12 years old. Having said that, I believe my Blu-ray player is actually 12 years old. That's in my desktop. In my desktop. So uh, I would think that it should be fine. Uh, I might see if you could get a Blu-ray um, file, like a, a Blu-ray rip, mm. and see if it plays before investing in a in an actual Blu-ray player in your in your machine, that might give you a good idea as to how well it can handle that bit rate. The other thing that I might be worried about for this generation of laptop is if the, if the bus that the DVD drive is on uh, was, they kind of cheaped out on because DVDs can only go so fast, then plugging in a Blu-ray player, which needs significantly more bandwidth uh, might be throttled at the hardware level just because they went cheaper on the bus. So, and there's no way to really, uh, suss that out from what we've got here. Um, and I don't think USB two would be USB two would be difficult. So I'm not really sure that that is an option for an external player anyways. So a couple things that stand out to me in this email, Steve, I think the first is I don't think I would go buying per, uh, parts for a T series laptop and try to put it into my edge. I don't think that's going to, I don't think you're going to have a lot of success. I'm not saying it for sure wouldn't work. Um, but in general, the the T-Series sells uh, for the price tag that it sells for precisely because they have kind of gone through and, and done all of the little niceties so that you can have 
you know, swappable drives and all of the, that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I would, I would probably rule out trying to swap out something from, from the T series, uh, uh, machine. As far as what you could do, uh, to play Blu-rays, I frankly don't, I, I guess I'd have a hard time understanding what the value in dragging the, the actual optical discs around would be, right? Like, there was a time where we didn't have ripping software and it just wasn't fundamentally technologically possible. At that point, it was you either bring your portable DVD player, portable Blu-ray player, or you bring your laptop. In that case, then you're playing it in the optical drive. Most laptops today don't even come with optical drives, right? They just have, you know, storage inside of them and then USB ports. So I think for a couple of reasons. One is it'll reduce your battery life because you have this motor that now has to spin the entire time that you're processing this disk. Uh, second thing is you are going to have to work through the challenge of can I get a drive connected that will play fast enough and all the things. I think a, f- a better approach might be plug a Blu-ray drive into your laptop and try to rip that disk using something like Make MKV and then try to play that Make MKV file back on something like VLC or MPV. Um, in doing so, you would A, be able to disconnect the Blu-ray drive. And even if the Blu-ray, let's say the transfer speed isn't great. Oh, well, you're just copying data. It'll take a little bit longer to copy, but eventually the file will get there. Uh, once you're done with that, if it plays, you can have a whole bunch of movies stored on your laptop and call them up at any time. And you retain the original disc in the event that your laptop is ever damaged or destroyed. You have a backup of the movie. You can go re-rip it without ever having to worry about the disc getting scratched or lost or stolen or whatever else. So there's a couple of thoughts that I had about this. Um, number one, with such an old laptop, we don't know how much storage there is. So there might mm. be something there. But um, before I actually went and tried to rip my own, I might try and go get Big Buck Bunny, which is the kind of the sample movie that, that is put out by the Blender Foundation. You can get it in 4K. You can get it in 1080p. And then you get an idea of um, how well it plays because they will have rendered that uh, with better settings than what you might have tinkered around with yourself. And ah. it'll give you an idea of like, this is free, it's open source, it's like freely distributable, you don't have to worry about any copyright downloading it, and there are different uh, formats you can download it in to see what actually plays. This is so cool. So I, I, I Google Big uh, Big Buck Bunny, and it takes me to peach.blender.org. And sure enough, just like Steve was saying, you can stream it right from the site on Vimeo, or you can download uh, a, a Creative Commons version. Um, download.blender.org slash movies. BBB. Um, so yeah, I'll, we'll, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have a link to Big Buck Bunny in um, in the show notes, and so we'll have those available to you. If that is helpful, take a look at it. But I, William, I would really appreciate it if you'd write us back. I'd love to know how this plays out. Um, this is an interesting problem, and it would be interesting how you go about solving it. Our fourth email comes in from Lou. Lou writes in and says, Hey, Noah, I'm going to try to call in, but I have a five-month-old, so that might not happen. Hold on, checking the phone. Can confirm. No, Lou. Just wondering if you could give me some insight onto how you created the Linux Delta website. I want to set up a similar site, but one that I can share with my friends so we can use it to rate movies. I think the sort of site would be awesome for that sort of thing. I built a few basic websites but I'm not sure how to do everything that Linux Delta does. You're the man, Noah! Thanks, Lou. So a couple things. Um, when we, I didn't build the Linux Delta website. I'm not a programmer, and I don't pretend to be one. And anybody that is a developer, I drive nuts when I, when I talk about developing code. So we'll just clear that up right now. But uh, the guy who did do it is a guy by the name of Brad Wilson, and he runs a company called Chronosync. And... Uh, the Linux Delta website is entirely open. Like we will give the code away. So you can just take the Linux Delta website and you can turn it into, you know, you change distros to movies and you could replace some of the art assets and throw the whole thing up. And we wouldn't have any problem with that. Um, what I will do, I don't have the, the, uh, a link to like a, a GitHub or a GitLab page off the top of my head, but I will reach out to Brad and see if we can get something like that, um, if it's not publicly available, make sure it's publicly available, and then we will. I'll, I'll post it uh, either in a future episode show notes, or we'll have it available on um, 
the Linux Delta GitLab instance. And uh, please take the work that has been done and do something cool with it. And then send me a link so that I can come rate your movies. Um, if it's something you're opening up, I would love to hear what you do with it. Very cool. This is where open source shines, if you ask me. Thornbill writes in and he asks, is Invoice Ninja still the recommended solution for invoicing? I always feel like I'm lost in a maze trying to use their interface. So if you run a company in where you do a thing, you write up a bill, you send the bill out, the customer pays you, you track the payment, and you move on. And that's what you expect from your invoicing system. I think Invoice Ninja is fantastic. They also allow you to white label the solution so that nobody will necessarily know if you don't want them to that you're using Invoice Ninja. You can make it look like, uh, you know, Thornbill Consulting LLC, whatever. Um, so from that standpoint, Linux, uh, uh, excuse me, Invoice Ninja is fantastic and they do a lot of the direct payment links and all of the kind of things that you'd want out of an invoicing system. I have tried, I don't know how many times to replace our accounting system with Invoice Ninja. And every time that I do, it is a very highly contentious, uncomfortable conversation with my accounting people and the nerds in the room. Um, I don't like proprietary accounting software. I don't like what it does. I don't like how easy it makes for uh, government agencies to conduct audits and all of those things. And at the end of the day, if your business gets large enough, you just need certain features that Invoice Ninja doesn't have. It doesn't do payroll tracking. It doesn't do um, quarterlies. It doesn't do – there's a whole bunch of stuff that you will have to do in a business that you won't be able to do in Invoice Ninja. So your choices are – you can do what I and I <laughs> absolutely did this from 2009 till a few years ago. Uh, we um, we used what open source could do for us for accounting, and then everything else we either did by hand um, or did the crappy open source implementation of you know as far as it could get you. And a funny side story on that: we ended up going through an audit uh, with the state, and they said, "Well, we need this report." And they said, "What do you use? Can we get your QuickBooks file?" I said, "We don't use QuickBooks. What do you use? We use Beans Books." We've never heard of that. What is it? It's an accounting software. It's kind of like QuickBooks, except it's open source. Interesting. Does it generate reports? Yep, sure does. Okay, we need these reports. No problem. So we printed off the reports, and it was a stack of papers, you know, I don't know, foot and a half high, two feet. And I walk into the office and with a box full of papers, and I set it down on the woman's desk, and she goes, what the heck is that? And I said, well, these are the reports you asked for. Yeah. Uh, can you give it to us in a QuickBooks file? Nope, I can't. I don't have one to give you. Well, is there any other way that you can export these? I mean, I could give you the raw text files if that would be helpful. And never heard from them again. So <laughs> I don't know what the end result was. But they have, but it's, 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 it's frustrating. They have software that they load the QuickBooks file in and it goes through and searches exactly what they want. They're, they know what they're looking for and it goes and does all the things and generates an analysis. And if you play by that book, then then all of that stuff works. So it comes at an extreme frustration for me to have to, I hope you can hear the frustration pouring out of my mouth into the microphone as I tell you how frustrated I am that I have to tell you that it, the, that Linux, Invoice Ninja isn't going to do what you want it to do if your business is of any size. If you're running a small shop, it'll probably work fine. But anything past that, and I think you're going to have to, you're going to just have to look at something else. Our pick of the week this week is Weasis. Now, Steve, I want you to hold your excitement because this is a Java app and I know how you feel about Java apps. But my, I had a family member that went in for, uh, was having some uh, health issues and went in for those health issues and they did a bunch of diagnostic imaging. And, uh, she came home and she called me and said, I want to view these files. I want to look at them and I want to know what is in them. And I asked them, I said, you have to give me a copy. I want a copy of them. And they gave them to me, but I put it into my computer and it doesn't do anything. And so I said, well, let me take a look. And so I drove over and uh, took a look at the disk that she had. And what was on the disk is or DICOM files. And if you're not familiar with DICOM files, it's actually a really brilliant thing that happened long, long ago. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, when it, medical imaging was first starting out and x-rays were you know, becoming very prolific and popular and ultrasound was just coming onto the scene um, and all of these new imaging technologies were coming out, all of these manufacturers like GE and Philips 
They were all trying to make the next best medical imaging thing, but they all had proprietary formats on how they stored all of these images. And radiologists put up a huge fight and said, you can't do this. I We can't have a system in which I have to use a piece of GE software to read the images be, just because the camera we had that year was GE, because next year it's going to be a Philips machine, and then there's going to be a whole different story, and the year after that it's going to be something else. And... So the, the radiologists pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And this is as early as the 70s. So you have to think about this. The vast majority of radiologists are still reading on, on film and putting them up on little light, lighted boards and reading that way. And that's the way to get the clearest image. If we put it up on the board, I don't want any of that computerized nonsense. I want to see every little piece right there on the thing. But the people that were doing it on computers were pushing for some sort of interoperable standard. And so along came DICOM. DICOM addressed two very important things. One it keeps a pristine, zero-quality loss, has the capability anyway, zero-quality loss of the original image data that came off of the camera that is stored in the DICOM file. And then it does something else that's very important and specific to medicine, and that is it appends the patient demographics into the file into a header. And so when you pull the DICOM file up, you get the patient's name, the patient's age, the date of birth, the type of study that was done, the machine that was done. Over 200 attributes are available in the DICOM file. And so these files are great. They're fantastic because they they basically ensure that for the last 30, 40, 50 years and for the foreseeable future, that you are going to be able to store this data in a way that is accessible to physicians so that they can follow the healthcare of people. What WESIS does in specific, and why I think this is so cool, it is a multi-purpose standalone web-based DICOM viewer that has a highly modular architecture and is incredibly popular in healthcare and hospitals used for trials and research and patients. It is not FDA approved for use uh, in uh, for a diagnostic uh, situation. So you can't have your physician go use it to interpret information and say, make a diagnosis based off of it. But it's perfectly appropriate for you to take your images that were taken by your healthcare provider and open them and read them yourself because you're not going to open a DICOM file, uh, you know, just by right clicking and opening it. Now, fun story. After I went down this rabbit hole, I eventually figured out that there actually is a plugin inside of GIMP and you actually can open a DICOM file in GIMP. But Let's pretend that doesn't exist because I didn't know that at the time. So the Wesos DICOM viewer, cross-platform, open source, Libre, multi-language. I took it over to my dad, who is a practicing cardiologist. And I sat him down in front of it, and he reads images all the time. He reads images from the cath lab when he's putting uh, wires and stents in people, and he reads echocardiograms when he's doing essentially ultrasounds of the heart. And I set it down in front of him, and I said, I want you to take some of your uh, some of your studies, and I want you to open it in this viewer, and I want you to tell me what you think. And he opened it, and he played with it for a little bit, and he goes, this is fantastic. This is the kind of thing that we pay tens of thousands of dollars for inside of hospitals to have something like this available. And this free and open source piece of software has literally every button I could want in my viewer the, to compare one image to the other, to change the scaling of it, to set side by side, to do the motion loop so that I can see what's happening with the heart. He goes, I can do all of that. This software, how can a place do something like this and release it as open source. It's amazing to me. And my guess is the answer in there is they're not paying for the, you know, the, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars it would cost them to get it FDA approved. But if you are a person that goes to a hospital and you have all, I, I see this all the time. People go in, they get an ultrasound of their baby and then they come out and what do you see? Right. It's like somebody's smartphone picture of the ultrasound machine screen. And they just they take it and it's just kind of a, uh, you know, the, a crappy little reach up and, and grab a snapshot. And then that's what you can use to post on social media and share with all the people. Imagine if you could have, you know, GE spends tens of millions of dollars to develop the way to get the best 3D ultrasound so you can see every little square millimeter of that baby's head. Why wouldn't you want to get a copy of that image and be able to open it and view it and share it? Because you can export them back out as TIFF from the viewer. It's one of the features. You can do all of that with a free piece of free and open source software. And so did it solve a problem that I had? Yes. Is it open source? Yes. So those two things are cool in and of themselves. But this fundamentally connects people with their own health care and empowers them to leverage 
the technology and the work that's been done by a lot of people for a long time. So I wanted to call some attention out to that. And closely related to OESIS is DM4Chi. Now, DM4Chi is a collection of open source applications and utilities um, that are used by healthcare professionals. Essentially, what the, the DM4Chi project is, is a what's known as a PAX server. And a PAX server, a picture and archiving communication system, is essentially the back end of what hospitals use to store those images so that they can be easily recalled. Um, and so you you can install DM4Chi on a server, and you can then connect Wesus to it, and you can say, I want to send an image up to the, the, the PAC server, and it will store it there. Or you can query the server to find a particular study or find a particular patient, and it will pull it back down into Wesus, and then you can view it. So think of it kind of like a server for Wesus. So DM4Chi, Wesus, those are the, those are the two, kind of combining them this week. But I'll have links for you in the show notes. I highly invite you to check these things out. I would also invite you to check out jforcare.com. These are the folks. This is the commercial entity that puts DM4Chi out there and makes it available. Here in the United States, we require FDA approval for uh, for, for, for medical interpretation stuff. Um, so far as I understand it, the PAX system falls outside of that because it's not doing any interpretation. It's just storing the data. Um, but the, these products just wouldn't exist if it wasn't for companies like J4Care who make their money off of developing commercial enterprise healthcare solutions for people and then they give back to the open source community. And so uh, just a massive thank you for, for to, to J4Care and a massive thank you to the folks over at Wesis to produce this stuff. It is remarkably helpful and empowering to people that want to look at their own medical images um, and otherwise wouldn't really have a way to do that because the people that are making that proprietary software, they're doing it for physicians and for hospitals. And there's a huge licensing cost, which means they got to charge a lot of money. In fact, in my brief cursory search where I was just trying to find a stupid solution to throw out there, I couldn't find a DICOM viewer system that you could use that didn't have licensing associated with it. Uh, and it was even harder to find one that was open source, harder yet to find one that was open source that worked, harder yet that was one find that was open source, it worked, and had the features of the proprietary ones. And Wesus checks every one of those boxes. So huge thanks to, to those guys. Uh, Steve, as we kind of wrap up uh, our episode, we just got a couple of minutes left. Anything you want to add? I think it's kind of interesting. I, I never thought to ask for the... Uh, the DICOM of both of my kids, and I was kind of noodling around, hmm, I wonder if they still have those. Can I go back and ask them for them 10 years later? Yeah, they're required, in the U.S., they're required by law to keep them for seven years. Most facilities will keep them longer for that, so it might be worth an ask. But in, 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 whether or not you have the, the images or not, uh, the, it just it felt so empowering to be able to say, yes, you can open this thing, and yes, somebody did think of that, and yes, that is available on Linux. I mean, I'm all for uh, tools that help people solve problems. Absolutely. And these guys are definitely doing that. Hey, thanks for joining us. The music in our ears means we are out of time, but it has been a great episode. We invite you to join us back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. We record the show every week. We record it live. We invite you to be here. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. You can follow the show at Ask Noah Show. Again, next Tuesday, we'll be back. Another episode, AskNoahShow.com. Have a great week.